The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Cesar Boffer-Walsh and welcome to The Wiser Podcast. This week we listen to the second episode of our two-part series on Regions 2050, Mobility, Extraction, Circulation. The focus is on the Congo Basin, a large eco-region in Central Africa. The Congo Basin remains understudied and researched, yet, like the Amazon, it holds enormous political, economic and ecological interest for the continent and the planet today. The discussion will take place between Achille Mbembe of Wiser, Rogers O'Rock of the Department of Anthropology at WITS, and Joshua Walker of New York University. All are members of the research cluster on the Congo Basin within Wiser's Regions 2050 project. The project is funded by the Carnegie Foundation New York City and the Gerda Henkel Foundation Dusseldorf, Germany. So I wanted to begin the conversation, Achille and Rogers, with a, a set of two questions. The first being, how do you understand the Congo Basin as a region? What are its defining features? How is it produced as a region, whether it be through a relationship to the water, to the forest, to shared history or to mobility? And then secondly, what therefore is the relationship, if there is one, between the Congo Basin's natural ecological features and its social and political forms. One, one could begin by saying that the Congo Basin as a kind of uh, spatial reality uh, is one of the enduring images of Africa. So in, in many ways, the Congo Basin is a, a very familiar, if you like, image, um, but at, at the same time, a not so well-known image, right? And so in my view, it is, uh, it is uh, an area within uh, not so well-known in relation to other otherwise well-known uh, so-called regions like the Great Lakes region. So if the Great Lakes region would be characterized as a kind of region in East Central Africa, the equivalent can be said of the Congo Basin as a kind of important spatial reality uh, in relation to West Central Africa, I would argue. Uh, and that goes uh, from some of the countries you uh, listed, you know, Cameroon, the two Congos, um, but also then going right down to Angola and, and, and even Zambia. So, so it's, a, it's, an, it's quite a huge area, territorially speaking. But I think there's a, a lot of work in thinking about this as a kind of region then in relation to your question, how is it produced as the region, is to think about the various ways in which this, um, this partial reality is at the same time so familiar to us and at the same time remains unknown through a variety of, um, uh, you know, cultural, if you like, productions. I just made mention of, uh, you know, literature, for instance, is one of the, the, the novels of Conrad, and I'm sure she can uh, fill in here, but there are many uh, cultural uh, productions from literature to music, and I'm sure we'll come back to, to this. So that's one of the, the ways in which the region 
uh, is produced partially as a kind of spatial reality, but also then as a kind of mental category, that people geographical reality that people live uh, live in. Uh, so, so I'll stop stop there, and then perhaps Ashila and I and yourself can talk a little bit more about what it, what these mean um, in 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 that sense, uh, in the sense of the Congo Basin as a kind of region, say in relation to mm -hmm. other much more familiar. Uh, regions like the Great Lake. Okay. Ashil, yeah, maybe you can pick up on this and specifically, uh, maybe you can speak to us about the particularities of the Congo Basin as a region that's defined by a relationship to water and what's sort of specific about the Congo Basin when compared to other similar aquatic regions in Africa, be they the Great Lakes or the Chad Basin as a couple of examples. It seems to me that this part of what uh, makes the Congo Basin um, so uh, intriguing, I would say, is, is first of all, it's, uh, its sheer size. When we take a reality such as the Congo River, the river is uh, the second only to the Amazon in terms of uh, uh, its size. and. Uh, I would also add in terms of uh, uh, its uh, freshwater species diversity. I introduced the Amazon uh, here because um, to a large extent, um, there are comparative elements between these two uh, planetary uh, entities. And uh, that comparison has not uh, so far as I understand the object of uh, major uh, study. You know, talking about the size too, uh, it strikes me that it, the basin covers four million kilometers square kilometers. That's quite quite a lot. You mentioned you and Joshua. You mentioned water and forests. Just as important, the species that inhabit those waters and those forests. The Congo Basin, for instance is understood to harbor uh, over 1,200 uh, fish species, 400 uh, mammal species, thousands of bird species, and uh, tens of thousands of uh, vascular plant species. And in that sense, it, it is uh, the repository of uh, uh, life forms and uh, life processes um, that uh, create a whole ecology, but also create something that precedes, I mean, pure human intervention. Those species exist whether humans intervene in the area or not. So uh, I, I would say that the uh, biodiversity of, of the region, the um, its ecosystems make it such that it constitutes something pretty unique, even before human intervention. And then when one adds to that, the many forms of human interventions over a, a long history, uh, then we come up with to face a, a reality that is extremely complex. Okay, thank you. Um... I think I want to move to a second set of questions here. 
Um, and I think this will actually bring us back in some ways to the relationship between this kind of natural history, which exists independent of human intervention, as well as human intervention. So I want to actually now broach the question of what we might call the planetary significance of the Congo Basin. In my reading, I see this planetary significance occurring on at least two planes. So the first one, as I think you've mentioned, Ashil, is its size and significance as a rainforest, as um, a, a lung of the earth, so to speak, and the biodiversity that's contained um, within it. On the, on the other hand, um, we have the question of the way in which the Congo and the Congo Basin more broadly have contributed to being the source of what you could call the raw materials of modernity. And here I'm speaking about extractive industries, be they rubber, oil, uranium, copper, coltan. And so in my reading that we can see the Congo Basin as being a source of planetary value in two ways. So on the one hand, in speaking in human terms, there's the older capitalist form of extractive value in the form of mining and other kinds of extractive industries. And then more recently, we have uh, the sort of new question that actually relates to biodiversity, which is the realization of the clim climatological value of conservation, which interestingly is a very different move. It's about keeping in place rather than removing. Um, and it manifests itself in new kinds of value like carbon financing. So I wanted to ask you both, um, how do you think that these dual kinds of relationship that the Congo Basin has with the rest of the world, how do, does this relationship structure and influence its internal dynamics? And what do you see as its contribution to the planetary? What you pose, at least for me, I come to, I come to that question uh, with but in a sense that it's a question about um, the modes by which uh, you know people inhabit that world and the relations by uh, that other parts of the world have to that world. So um, in some, uh, this is a question about the kind of political ecology, um, but also political economy uh, of, of, of this region. And, and here, the, the history, the sheer history, the weight of history uh, uh, on the Congo Basin as a whole, of course, um, more true for some specific countries within the Congo region, uh, Congo Basin region than others, but the sheer weight of history in terms of this political ecology and, and, and political economy is um, disturbing to say the, the least. Right, so that indeed, uh, this is a region characterized by uh, plenitude in terms of not only what it holds in relation to biodiversity, uh, minerals, and all of what you listed, but also uh, how it is that that region is also characterized by immense vulnerability, or in fact, vulnerabilities in terms of not only its capacity to hold on to that plenitude, but even just uh, to, to govern it. I, I was avoiding using the word to govern, but it, it's inevitable at this point that uh, that is the, the term that one has to uh, resort to use. And so in, in my sense, 
I think that the, the question you ask is at the center uh, of new, if you like, new struggles, old, very old colonial struggles, but also the very new one, which have to do with what you call the struggle to hold in place, right? So the struggle for conservation, the struggle um, against you know, carbon emissions and all of that. And in, it is not so clear that, you know, that the old struggles do not flow into the new and that the new are so distinct. Well, what, what I mean by that is that uh, the infrastructure of colonialism continues to determine in large part uh, how uh, the new struggle to, for conservation or against climate, uh, uh, you know, against the damage to the planet and the Congo Basin's potential contribution to that. So the old colonial infrastructure, the colonial political economy, even in its most extractive, extractive forms today, continues to impinge very much on the capacity that actors within this regional space have uh, to undertake that task. In other words, in my view, and I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm interested to hear what Ashil will, will say, but, but in my view, uh, this is the region where plenitude has been almost uh, matched to the same proportion with vulnerability and shared destitution uh, over the long, long period of historical consideration here. So um, that is in relation to these kinds of questions. However, uh, there's something much more also profound than to ask what are the modes to, to ask about the relationship of this society to itself? Right? It's one thing, the questions you ask in one way uh, almost inevitably ask us to think about the relation of you know, these Congo Basin societies to the rest of the world. But then when you look inward, you know, what are the relationships um, within these societies to them, themselves? And here again, the, the, this, the, the overriding framework of political ecology and the political economy of, you know, the modes by which people occupy uh, and accumulate resources in this space becomes also very salient in my view. And it, it uh, to some extent, and there are elements of complementarity in relation to the, the, you know, the questions of violence and vulnerability but it's of a different kind. And, and, and for me as an anthropologist, what I, uh, what I see is that there is a long history of predation also inside, and that is the element of complementarity, that the mode, an important register for, for the modes of occupying and, and living and you know, living uh, in this space is predation and destitution, even if one were to discount the, the brother structural conditions of the capitalist economy. And I'm saying so, if one goes right back to reading um, people like Jean Van Sina, uh, and so I'm, I mean, I'll be interested to hear what, what you and, and Ashil think, but that for me is a, an important um, frame for, for reading and engaging with this, this uh, spatial reality. I think that uh, Rogers has uh, covered this issue pretty well. Let me just add maybe one or two minor details. The first 
has to do, of course, with the, uh, the fact that like uh, uh, many other uh, crucial landscapes, uh, the Congo Basin's existence is, uh, is under threat. It has been under threat for, for a long time, but uh, this is uh, <clears throat> all the more so uh, today because of a number of factors such as um, a growing population, uh, of course, uh, such as uh, deforestation, um, the extraction of uh, forest resources uh, uh, largely understood, inconsistent uh, governance, and, and of course the, the effects of, uh, of climate change uh, as such. And, and all of these combined have uh, has, um, uh, made the, the basin, if we are to believe the studies that are being produced, one of the most vulnerable places. Now, as you and uh, Rogers uh, highlighted, this is also one of the richest places on earth. So the question of how we reconcile, on the one hand, uh, this element of vulnerability, and on the other hand, the wealth dimension of this area has been a dilemma for a very, very long time. Um, how do we find a workable solution to, to turn uh, this tension around? And uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, the, uh, the forest, uh, on the other, uh, provide jobs, for instance, for local communities, this is a key, a key issue, uh, which has been uh, with us, uh, I would say, uh, historically. Thanks very much. And I would just add, um, Ashil, that one of the things to be taken into consideration there is the question of how, how you sort of engage with the region in terms of these questions. And what I mean by that is that um, even when issues relating to the Congo Basin as a region are tackled, for instance, by international institutions. There's always a dimension of the nation state that returns in those kinds of programs of cooperation. Even if we're talking about the basin, it's always um, kind of engagement with multiple nation states that are thought to make up the Congo Basin. But implicitly here in our discussion, we're really talking about a region for which the nation state is only somewhat relevant as a unit of analysis. And I think that's one of the things that often gets lost in the, these conversations. I want to, before we conclude, just return briefly to the question of the political, which was presented at the beginning of our conversation. Um, also, it was a way of bridging our aesthetics with the political. And I'm sort of tacitly referring here to Ashil, your um, well-known chapter article on the aesthetics of vulgarity. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, to what extent you think that that form of the political is still relevant and it, whether it's a particularly acute manifestation of how politics is practiced across the continent, but in, in those countries of the Congo Basin. Um, and of course, here I'm also thinking about um, the longevity of certain rulers and regimes, um, whether it be the hereditary succession that occurred in Gabon, um, in Cameroon, Paul Bia, 
the longevity of Denis Asungesu in Congo Brazzaville. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what you think is is unique to the Congo Basin with regard to the forms, including the aesthetics forms that politics take there. That's a very uh, um, a complex uh, question. Uh, it would require long, long developments. Uh, let me just highlight uh, a few um, provisional uh, observations. It strikes me uh, the extent to which um, <clears throat> the political or even economic histories of uh, this region uh, might differ from the political and economic histories, uh, say, of uh, uh, parts of West Africa, especially uh, those parts of West Africa that were uh, deeply uh, structured uh, by um, uh, multinational empires, uh, long distance trade, and um, religions such as Islam. I have in mind uh, the political formations that emerged, for instance, in the Sahelian belt, or for that matter, in places such as the uh, Sante Kingdom, the uh, Yoruba states, or, or the Kingdom of Dahomey, all kingdoms uh, that had some uh, deep interaction as with uh, their northern neighbors. I have the feeling that uh, <clears throat> those historical contrasts are still uh, prevalent uh, today. They are prevalent in the sense that in the Congo Basin, Basin region, the um, contradiction between what Jane Geyer calls wealth in people and wealth in things, that contradiction was more pronounced here than it was in uh, important parts of West Africa. Uh, I'll say it again, especially the Sahelian belt. Um, the contrasts are also to be seen in the kind of kinship politics that uh, took place in the Congo Basin, which came with its own forms of uh, servitude, its own forms of clientship, its own forms of pawnship, uh, its own uh, mathematics of gender relations, its own um, structure of relations between elders and uh, uh, youngsters, uh, relations between generations. All of this happening in an ecological region in which, of course, there is a history of regional exchange, but the history of regional exchange here uh, never really reached the same intensity as the one we uh, witnessed in, in West Africa. And yet, this is also a region in which the management of complexity was absolutely critical and was premised on a whole set of cognitive, indigenous cognitive concepts, which borrowed, of course, at some point from Christianity, but which were deeply embedded in 
local histories, as opposed to West Africa, where uh, Islam, as I said, did shape a lot. Monotheistic religions uh, in the form of Islam did shape political culture to a large extent. I'm raising all of these points to highlight the importance of local historicities in uh, the production of the kind of uh, uh, polities we see uh, uh, at work uh, today, characterized by all that we know of uh, authoritarianism, uh, at the same time, lots of social porosity, the combination of uh, contradictory uh, features, which um, end up uh, forging forms of authoritarianism whose power is not limitless, whose forms of power that are both extremely violent, uh, brutal, and yet convivial, almost uh, um, convivial if, if you want. So those paradoxes seem to me to be part of uh, uh, the um, history of the region. And they might explain somewhat the trajectory uh, post-colonial states have, uh, have, have followed. But, but Rogers probably has a lot more to say about it than, than me. No, I don't. <laughs> Thank you, Ashil, for, uh, for, for that very uh, rich, I think, very deep uh, reflection on what one could um, argue uh, the kind, kinds of uh, internal dynamics that work at the same time uh, and sometimes in contradiction with uh, the dynamics of the nation state. Go back to Joshua's colonialism and the, the imposition of the nation state uh, on these kinds of societies uh, to produce the kinds of, of uh, the forms of rule that we are seeing. So on the one hand, uh, the kind of brutality that you talk about uh, is very much one which is, if you like, deepened by the nature of colonial violence um, and, and it's, if you like, inherited forms in the post-colonial context or post-colonial moment. But at the same time, in the internal local, uh, in their internal and localized, uh, you know, forms, um, power as violent and, and as deep as it could be was not, to use your uh, words, limitless. Whereas um, one thing that this, um, the apparatus of the state, the post-colonial state, the colonial state actually uh, uh, enables is in a way uh, to almost render, render this violent power limitless is my is my sense and, and and that in in a way that instead of you know limiting the power of of those who um who rule uh the state enables this uh these autocrats to rule almost in perpetuity now uh, or at least till they die that in addition to to what ashil is saying 
I'm more and more interested in the way that these kinds of local histories, perhaps the social dimension of these local histories might also be instructive to how we think about you know, the political aesthetics we observe today in the region. A notable dimension of that is what I would say uh, is what um, maybe it's domestic uh, or the dom domesticity. I, I, I'm unsure how to characterize it, but the relations within the home, relations, gender relations between men and women, relations of sexuality, uh, you know, the forms of sexuality. And we are at a moment which is really, I would say, uh, instructive in terms of how all of these are now coming, uh, coming out to play uh, for us uh, with the you know rising tide of uh, of um, you know gender-based violence uh, in some places, but also uh, claims against uh, the state on same-sex uh, rights. Uh, at the same time, violence and attacks uh, on uh, same-sex communities, uh, and at the same time, um, we we are seeing a, 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 the what I what I think is an important part of what Ashil prefigures in in his uh, in his uh, aesthetics of vulgarity, the explosion of uh, the sexuality of those in power in question since at least the turn of the millennium, uh, there's almost always uh, something to say about the sexuality of those, uh, those in power. And that will be an important part to consider uh, in terms of the political aesthetics of the moment.